Much is made these days of Hollywood's dependence on IP. As theaters still recover from the pandemic, only films about superheroes or existing franchises seem to have any chance at making money. Original material is shunted to the small screen, and even that is starting to be crowded out by established blockbuster material. But while this reliance on the familiar and the dependable may have become more pronounced in the last few decades, it is certainly not new. The Big Sleep is the Marlowe adaptation that towers above the rest, setting basic iconography for the character in film noir, but it was not the only or even first cinematic appearance for the P.I. that decade. Five other films based on Marlowe novels were released in the 1940s. Even in the golden age of the studio system, it was old hat for producers to want the safety of a proven thing and brand recognition. For a period of time, Marlowe fit that bill. But trends rise and fall, especially in Hollywood. The departure of Marlowe from the big screen foretold the similar decline of film noir. And while not every entry was a complete success, seen together they paint a broad picture of where noir and the detective stood in the decade of their cinematic birth. Yeah, well, like a man told me once, step out your door in the morning, you're already in trouble. It's just a matter of whether you mixed up at the top of that trouble or not, that's all. So you're a private detective? I didn't know they existed except in books, or else they were greasy little men snooping around hotel corridors. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like, uh, your opinion, man. Step aside like a nice fella and let us do our job. What's in it for me? Nobody got hurt. Oh, God, I'm saying I think they died quickly, though, so I don't think that they got hurt. It's okay with me. Hello and welcome to Celluloid Dirt, where two friends get together to watch new and familiar noir films, then talk about them. I'm one of those friends, Tristan Johnson, joined by my friend, Brett Pelzer. And tonight we return with five more cinematic interpretations of Philip Marlowe. Some feature Chandler plots, but with different pre-existing detective characters, while others add some interesting cinematic flair to the proceedings. Because we have so many entries to cover, we're going to try and lightning round this episode and give a brief overview of each movie and some key takeaways. But before we get started, Tristan, were you familiar with any of these? Uh, I had not seen a single one of them, um, but but was was definitely aware of Murder, My Sweet, um, at least with having a, a bit higher of a reputation in the noir circles. Same. Uh, I had not seen any of these. I had not heard of the first two detective characters that we're going to look at that are not philip marlowe nope um i had heard of murder my suite in just sort of a general like this is a very good noir very good early noir uh and i had heard about lady in the lake because it is bonkers uh from a oh, yes it is from a technique perspective and we'll get into that so that that uh it was on my radar but i had not seen any of these either so it was it was Interesting, and it was also kind of confusing, um, as we'll get into, because uh, a lot of them are adaptations of the same book. So it was weird to just keep watching the same story over and over again. Yeah, this is going to be an interesting discussion and uh, interesting recap. Uh, but let's dive in, starting with 1942's The Falcon Takes Over. Based on the novel Farewell, My Lovely, 
The Falcon takes over, cannibalizes the book's plot involving a towering ex-con looking for his girl and a playboy trying to reclaim a stolen jade necklace and puts it to work for the Falcon series of crime pictures. This is number three of four George Sanders performances as the Falcon, a character who would later be played by Tom Conway and then John Calvert for a total of 17 installments between 1941 and 1949. I mean, people complain about Spider-Man being adapted you know, played by three different actors over 20, <laughs> 20 years. And this is, uh, outpaces that by in half, half the time. No, imagine a, a Spider-Man every single year. We're almost at that point. I mean, but, Spider-Man, uh, two but, Spider-Mans a year. Yeah. Gosh. Uh, <laughs> Exhausting. Let's dig right into it. We're not going to beat around the bush here. Um, so just as sort of an intro, the Falcon is a classic general detective type, uh, similar to William Powell, as we looked at a few episodes ago. Um, so yeah, what do you think of our Nick Charles esque Playboy? Well, you get you get the the silhouette uh, right up front, and and you know you're 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 seeing um, you're seeing this this play of shadow, but uh, but it is not it, you are not in store for a noir. It is very clear right from the get go. Um, he is in that classic gentleman detective mode, and uh, and. Yeah, George Sanders is uh, is is no Humphrey Bogart, uh, but this is also this is he's an okay William Powell though. He's an okay William Powell, and this is um, this is no noir. This is kind of uh, existing as this this weird hybrid of genres where yeah. it doesn't quite know what it is. It's not quite committing. Uh, it's it's kind of fascinating in that regard, but it doesn't necessarily all work. Yeah, it's uh, and part of it is definitely just the source material conflicting with the character. I think that comes so the if you're familiar with the book, you know, it's uh, the main job that he's on is for um, this this ex con Moose who's huge, who's trying to find the girl that um, and he he just got out of prison and he's trying to find the girl that he was in love with before he went in. Um, but he's going around trying to track her down and people keep dying. He's trying to find her and meanwhile the falcon is kind of putting together the case but the falcon keeps saying he's not a private detective because he's not he's a rich playboy who i mean it is like screwball comedy elements where he's like his fiance is claims to be a i took it to be a joke that she's using to scare people off, that she says that she is a, she's off screen. We never meet her in this movie. I don't know. Maybe she comes up in other ones, but she claims to be a, a, a bullfighter and very jealous because George Sanders just keeps hitting on every woman that he sees. And yes, I mean, that's the last, the last line of the, the movie is him hitting on yet another woman, but it's George Sanders, which also makes it read very strangely. It really does. It's not, um, he, he's, he's an okay William Powell. <laughs> I think, yes. I think that's as far as we'll, we'll go. There's times where he seems almost bored in the role. Mm-hmm. Well, but um, I think that's then, like what he does, right? I mean, I think of Eve. All about Eve. All about Eve. Yeah. I was about to say, there's something about Eve. <laughs> now I'm picturing all about Eve or made as a, there's something about Mary style, grass out, something about <laughs> Mary gross out, gross out humor. <laughs> oh, <God>. um, <laughs> But no, yeah, there's it, like that's his. That's what he's doing there too, right? So I think it's just that's just George Sanders, and it's whether it's just a question of how well that aligns with the role. And here, it kind of doesn't. And and then he'll sometimes him him pretending to be drunk um, skews very oh, yeah. broad, and yeah. uh, and so there there's these 
there's these intense comic elements to it. Then there's the gangster picture elements to mm-hmm. it where the where it seems like it's drawing more from that subset of the Cagney pictures from the the 30s than it than it is from anything else. And and we still were a year out from Maltese Falcon uh, or a year after Maltese Falcon. We we don't have the pattern of noir to fall For into sure. yet. Uh, but then I think it, when it does feel the most noir is in the ending because you don't get your traditional drawing room. I'm going to walk you through what happened like you do in your traditional golden age mystery. Instead, you get a violent confrontation with the femme fatale who has been hiding her identity that Moose has been trying to track down and she, she kills him. And, uh, you know, so it's, it, it feels very unsettling in a way that does not match the mood of the rest of the movie. But then once that's done, it goes, it reverts back to like him flirting with every single woman that he sees. It's just yeah. like, see I, you in it, six months for the next one of these. It's not a movie with a very good grasp of tone, but I also, I've got no, um, no comparison point for these, the other Falcon pictures. I'm mildly curious, but these are movies that, Based on this one, these are movies that I would toss on in the background. I based on what and, I've and this is this is a short movie too. This oh, that's is, the other thing. I mean, these are an hour classic um, programmers, one hour in and out, cheaply made. Um, based on my very light research of the other movies, I think George Sanders and Tom Conway are both supposed to be about as good as this gets. Uh, John Calvera was a stage magician who then was drafted in to play the role for the last three movies. And they're supposed to be the worst of the series. So I'm not compelled to go see these, but I don't know. One day I may, while I'm folding laundry, toss one of these on just to satisfy my light curiosity about what, what this is. Yeah. uh, And, and I'm curious, I guess if any of the later ones move a bit more into um, noir as the genre starts to develop or if they continue to to sidestep that uh, because it does it does have those those elements that are that are there For but sure. without without marlo with it with, well, with this being it's... it's hard I, I think i i think you could make a case for it if if it wasn't this gentleman detective right. character if it wasn't i think that's the source material right i think that's the you know, because we'll, we'll talk about this at the end, but there are so many parts of the plot that feel that, that are of a piece with the other Marlowe adaptations, but the tone and the characters are pretty far removed from the tone of a Marlowe Chandler story. Yeah. And so I think that's, and that's this really weird uh, tension that results between those two elements. It doesn't make it good, but it is sort of a, what's, what's really going on here? Yeah, and uh, and of course we um, we will be getting another take on uh, uh, on farewell, my lovely. Yes, uh, only only version number one, uh, and actually it's the second one comes two years later. But before we get to that, next up we have time to kill.
The next Marla book to get adapted, The High Window, was put to work for the Michael Shane series of films. A detective gets hired by an old woman to procure a divorce and recover a stolen coin from her ne'er-do-well daughter-in-law, only to find conspiracies within conspiracies. Much like uh, The Big Sleep, we've got a we've got a an affluent character whisking Marlo or not Marlo in this case, but our, our hero protagonist into a room to give him his mission that he is set off on. Of course, there are complications. Of course, there's more than one story being adapted kind of here into, into one. Uh, we've got a couple different cases intersecting here. Uh, so Right, and some uh, yeah. context on the on the detective in this one. So we're closer to Marlowe this time around. Uh, but as mentioned, this is uh, part of the Michael Shane series of detective movies starring Lloyd Nolan. So Lloyd Nolan would, this is his seventh and final appearance as Shane. Uh, these were made for Fox. And then at that point, the rights were picked up by PRC, who uh, they went on to make another five Michael Shane movies this time with Hugh Beaumont. Again, haven't watched a single other one of these. Nope. Uh, we do actually get to see Lloyd Nolan again uh, later in this episode, and I like him a lot. I, I, you know, it's definitely a lighter touch for the noir, but uh, I, I like Lloyd Nolan a lot. Yeah, um, I I would agree with you. He's no Bogart, but he's likable. Um, um, he's he lands some good quips. He lands some good punches. What's not to like? And uh, and and I do think he skews this far more toward toward what we think of as noir just by mm-hmm. his presence alone. Right. He's got like the sarcastic element, and I think also something that even just going from falcon takes over it's time to kill that then kind of ties it back to actually the last episode and what we were talking about with bogart is how much this is back to being about money right that the the shane character here and we'll see this again in the other adaptations is very very focused on this is how much it costs this is how much you're going to pay me this is you know i am doing a job and again the Falcon is a rich playboy character. George Sanders Falcon is a, a rich playboy character who's doing it for the hell of it, for the kicks. He's literally, he's, he's going, this seems interesting. People keep dying around me. So I guess I'll see what's up about it. And meanwhile, Michael Shane is, is going, this is how much you're going to be paying me every day. Plus uh, expenses. Don't forget the expenses. Yeah. Uh, that uh, this is uh, so as far as as far as all the beats go, they're all there. We're 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 firmly in noir territory. This still, um, it can't resist the comedy angle. There's mm-hmm. there's a there's a number of beats, um, the dentist office, which feels um, um, weird, like like it's weirdly just being played it for was, yeah. comic comic touch. And honestly, even the the re- even the reveal at the end. Uh, <laughs> When we see, uh, as we get directly into spoiler territory here, as uh, as we see uh, our our old woman pushing um, pu- I pushing mean, the victim from the window, I could not help but burst out into laughter because I don't think was, you can do that not in a not camp way, right? Like I think no, that works on the page, but just the image it's, it doesn't land as funny in the next one, but it's still kind of absurd just on the face yeah. of it. Um, yeah, no, this is another, but it, it totally, it feels much more compatible with the Chandler plot where you've got 
this detective going around. He gets hired onto this first case that's about getting this divorce from for the daughter-in-law who the matriarch also thinks stole this very valuable coin. And he starts investigating into it. Suddenly the coin turns up. He meets the, the daughter-in-law. She seems perfectly reasonable. The matriarch's son is a real piece of work. Uh, there's a whole, again, subplot of like just sort of the more general corrupt LA elite that gets played out in the background with uh, the guy that he pushes in the pool. Yeah. And so, and again, like Nolan's definitely bringing a much lighter touch than you'd see from the traditional Marlowe's that we'll see next, but it still feels coherent. It, it does. It's, uh, it, it's, it's still in a genre that's still very much finding his feet or finding its feet. He's got a, he's got a place there and I can see, uh, I can see the appeal to this. Um, this is also really a, another programmer. This is a, again, yeah. an, an hour long, roughly um, snappy moves along quick burns through plot. Right. Uh, Which I think works. I think it works for the, I mean, I, there wasn't any point where I was feeling that I needed more just to understand what was happening. Right. It, it didn't. Right. And actually it, it'll be very, it's interesting to talk about that because the, again, this is only one of two adaptations of this particular book that we'll talk about this episode um, of, of the high window. And the other one is both longer and has less plot. <laughs> so it, it is both of those things. <laughs> uh, so we'll get to that one. Um, but no, I, I, I like this, I, this one, I actually, I would be, interested in checking out some other Lloyd Nolan as Michael Shane movies. Again, I, I don't think that they're going to be great, but I think I will enjoy them. And this is the, my, my perfect wheelhouse. Put this movie on and just kind of enjoy the, the LA vibes and the, the whole thing. Like this is, this is perfect down the middle of the uh, middle of the plate. I put together like five different metaphors in my uh, uh, metaphors in my head at the tried to say them all at the same time. So I got a little muddled out there, but I think you all understand what I mean. If you're into these kinds of movies, I think the the Lloyd Nolan movies are are perfectly watchable. Agreed. Yeah, I'd be I'd be um, keen to check more out, and uh, and of course we will at least get our fix of some more Lloyd Nolan uh, as we move. Yes. Along. Although one other thing to talk about this one and the, that's in both of these is the gaslighting angle, which is sort of a the I think there's a you know, in a very kind of traditional heteronormative sense, there's the masculine noir, which is often revolves around crime and criminals and finding justice in a very active, bare-knuckled kind of way. And then a quote-unquote feminine noir, especially at this time when you literally, you know, literally had women's movies that was more focused on psychological uh thrillers and so the gaslight i mean literally gaslight as sort of a early proto-noir but then the plenty of hitchcock movies too in that in that vein um yeah you know i know criterion put uh my name is julia ross in their universal noir collection and so uh so that's it's interesting that it pops up here that there is this gaslighting element where this old lady has convinced her assistant that she has like blackouts and to switches into a murderous rage. Uh, and, you know, it's, I mean, 
it it works like it, but it feels coherent again it feels coherent tonally with what the movie's doing because it is you know i mean noir is kind of on, the, on a little melodramatic and a little silly but it also plays it hard or hard enough and plays it in a way that feels psychologically true and also like the medium itself is trying to convey the inner turmoil inner, inner turmoil of the characters so um so yeah, it's interesting to see that pop up here and, and see how that's another strand of noir kind of getting yeah, weaved and in I, and out. And, and that's not that's not one that we're going to cross paths with too often in the in our our uh, our private investigator examination. But but on in other pockets of noir, it, it is going to be much more prevalent for sure. Would you say Chinatown with Faye Dunaway? I mean, I'm trying to like that's kind of like self. I, I'm trying to remember how much she repressed it. You know what I mean? And I yeah. guess that, I guess gaslighting I, does require like an active outside. I don't know. That may be something to think about when we get there. That's sort of a further evolution of the the that I, particular plot device. There, there's certainly there's certainly a lot more that we can uh, we can dig into with that concept. And yeah, Hitchcock kind of um, re- really holds holds the key to that. But there's there's a loads of classic noir that I think are are right in that wheelhouse that would be awesome to uh, make a, a full segment out of. For sure. Unfortunately, today we are not talking about those movies. No, today we, we are talking about a lot of uh, mediocre and some good and some bad movies. Um, yes. All right. So next up, we have Murder My Sweet. Want to make a statement? The boys told me I did a couple of murders. Anything in it? I think you better let me have it. Bring in your book. All right, we're finally here. The first big screen appearance by Philip Marlowe. Murder, My Sweet is another take on Chandler's Farewell, My Lovely, the book that was also adapted into The Falcon Takes Over. Uh, with the return of the dummy moose, our towering ex-con, searching for his lost love, the missing Veronica. Uh, but this time, we actually get to have Marlowe uh, played here by Dick Powell, beating Bogart to the screen by full two years, in part thanks to uh, delays called, caused by World War II. But even, even that aside, it was going to be the first adaptation. And um, this yeah. time, it, it, it adds an extra half hour. Like we said, the Falcon Takes Over was, was a flat hour. This is an hour and a half. Uh, it's pretty close to a straight adaptation. That was apparently one of the things that got the screenwriter the job. He just sort of went, I don't really have to do much. I'm just going to take the book and reformatted as a screenplay apparently it was dick Powell who really pushed for this to happen because he was aging out of the ingenue roles in musicals and saw that he could he thought he had could have a future in crime and gangster movies and so he he kind of put helped put this all together and you know uh it kind of works for me i I didn't think it was going to. I've, you know, I like Dick Powell in other movies. You know, he's good in Gold Diggers and his other musical appearances I've seen. So I was kind of surprised that it worked pretty well for me to see him doing the hard-boiled noir thing. I, I thought he, I thought he did a terrific job, honestly. And uh, and I'm a, it was I'm a something to do with his voice that bugged me. Like that was the one thing was he was clearly affecting something because we've seen him in so many other things you're just sort of like all right all right dude he was he was making a a conscious effort to to set himself apart and i I love i love 42nd street and gold diggers and uh and footlight parade and he's he's wonderful um 
and this is a departure and and, and it works partly because he has screen presence he yes. he can he can carry a movie he's he's um his face is interesting <laughs> i mean yeah. to be uh to, yeah, he's to always, bring it back to that yeah he's sort of in that sort of in-between space of you know he's he's a little boyish enough that he reads well for the ingenues, but he's not so classically handsome that you're like, this is a pretty guy who should only be an ingenue. You know, it's, it, it is sort of interesting in between space, but I, I don't know. Cause I think uh, another noir that we'll eventually get to the bold and the beautiful, I think he's makes it to a sweet. And that's, you know, 10 years after this, but I yeah, think it's a little, little later on. So. Uh, by that point, he sort of found his sweet spot when it comes to, acting in this mode and i don't i just felt like i could feel him trying a little too much to prove that he's not just a a pretty singer you know what i mean uh yeah i think uh i think that's true i still still really enjoyed it 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 was um, the one thing detracting from that performance for me uh that's fair uh and, and you know it's uh i think a lot of the success here and i i would say that i outright loved this movie i yeah it was great i really really enjoyed it um but here is a great case where we're going to contrast this with what we've seen we've just seen um uh edward uh dimitrik uh i'm i'm hoping i'm saying i think think that's correct yeah um uh anyway dimitrik is um it showed up for the job he's he is here to direct a movie he is not just from the opening time opening scene you're like oh okay this is to me it's like I said, somebody's making a movie. They're not just like, all right, we got to fill 60 minutes and get it up on, you know. I mean, this programmers are essentially early TV, right? Where it's, we've got limited time, limited money. They're very talky, limited sets because we're just going to churn them out. And that's the Falcon takes over. That's to a lesser degree. That's what's happening with Time to Kill. Time to Kill does feel a little bit more expansive, but this you're like, oh, okay. There's a person with a vision who is creating a, visuals that help tell the story. Right, and it's a delight. Time, time to kill has noir trappings because of Chandler, mm-hmm. uh, but but um, here Dimitrik is actually pushing the genre forward. He yeah, he oh, is helping, the earliest he is helping set set the pattern, set the tone, um, the way the camera moves, which mm-hmm. uh, which um, which has purpose and um, and it gives you a real sense of space and a sense of unease at times. Yeah, um, I love the exaggerated neon of the city. Like so many great shots that it's just a little bit cartoonish, a little bit Dick Tracy, but still feels grounded enough that it supports what's happening in the rest of the movie. But it, you know, I mean, I think you see here the seed of, you know, like John Wick, right? Like any of those movies that be, that have entered into the, the hyper stylized neon space i mean like sin city like those are all i think yeah magnified versions of what you're starting to see here yeah it's um it's so true and uh and and this is uh this is a young genre which me and i think that the directors that are playing around at this time because this is the same year right as uh as double indemnity as laura Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. which are are two of the greats and and you can tell that these directors are excited that they are helping shape something like they're they're in a new sandbox all of a sudden what do you think of the so just i mean we're in we're new spoilers here we kind of talked about it a little bit already but uh so you know marlo is uh 
trying to find Veronica for Moose. He also ends up in this other, working this other case that involves a jade necklace that gets stolen and he gets hired by a, a playboy to back him up to get the, the, the necklace back. As is so often the case, these cases, these se- seemingly separate cases are actually interconnected and one's going to feed into the other. Um, but the thing that it preserves from the book, which I do remember from the book, I remember this, this section because I read the book, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago now, but there's um, Marlowe confronts the person who's behind a lot of what's happening and gets knocked out as is a, a classic trope of the genre of just, you know, one to the back of the head. And that's oh, something the, else that the, we, the, like the pooling voids that he yeah. he's feeling. Yeah. Um, yeah. But he wakes up in a rehab center where he's being kept sedated by a crooked psychiatrist. So I was, I'm very curious to hear what you think about, I mean, it's a visually striking sequence then as he is like descends into nightmare. I mean, it's essentially like, a precursor to the second place. Yeah. Oh, it totally is. I feel like that. I feel like that is where, uh, and I think you, you've got that noted on here. Yeah. That is where the Hitchcock uh, is rubbing off on, on filmmaking already. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and, you know, obviously a lot for, for a lot of film viewers, we're thinking of uh, people think of Hitchcock and they think of, of Vertigo and North by Northwest and Psycho and these these films that are coming in the the late fifties, but by this by mid forties he's already he's got Rebecca and he's got uh, got Suspicion and Thirty Nine Steps and uh, and he's already really leaving his mark. I think it, is Spellbound the same year as this? Is Spellbound uh, the year before? Um, it's like right in that right around Spellbound, the same time. Yeah, Spellbound's got some similarities there for sure. Yeah. Uh, but the, but the Hitchcock drive is strong uh, and, and it, I think it's successful here, at least, uh, at least for me, it, it, it was, it doesn't just feel like he's, he's aping that. I think, I think Dimitrik is skilled enough that he pulls it off. No, I think he pulls it off. And it's a striking choice to, you know, I mean, it's again, because this is such a straight adaptation of the book you, and it is such an internal part of the book you know it's you got to be able to dig in and, and find a way to access a, a very abstract part of the plot uh, and i think he does a great job uh you know i think something else that you you marked here also that that is interesting and striking and i don't think is in the book is the framing device so uh here we open with marlo being questioned by the police because several people have died as tends to be the case when marlo's around um, but he's also been blinded and his face is covered by bandages and it's, he's, he's completely wrapped up. And so it is sort of a nice, you know, and again, like, I think it's a precursor to Sunset Boulevard, right? Of, I mean, in general, obviously there's plenty of, we're going to do a series of flashbacks within the noir genre, but I think especially the, our protagonist has been seriously injured and eventually in Sunset Boulevard dead. And then we're going to go back and see how we got there. And I think that kind of is a, is a through line here too. Yeah. Well, and, um, and, and this is certainly the first, as far as I'm, as far as, as I am aware, um, the, the first noir that really sets the, um, not just, uh, not just injured, but like is, is um, a, a 
protagonist, a character that's bandaged up notably. You've got Gloria Graham in the big heat. You've mm-hmm. got Jack Nicholson and his his <laughs> busted nose in Chinatown. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the bandages over Dick Powell's eyes is such a striking image For to, sure. to open up. And, and I mean, even I mean, this is you know, starting to talk about things that are like debatably noir, but you know. Uh, uh, actually, I think you don't think these are, but I've seen people refer to them as noir, but I, th- I think there is something maybe to even like eyes without a face and uh, just a sort of a pure visual imagery sense. I could see that being striking enough to then replicate outwards into that or, um, oh, what's the yeah, oh, and, um, and Japanese one? Uh, I'll find it. But uh, but anyway, it, it, like I said, it's just a super striking visual. And so I wouldn't be surprised if that alone provided the seeds for, you know, especially considering how impactful the 40s noir were on the French. I think, in short, this movie is very much at the cutting edge of the birth of, of noir and is doing a lot of stuff that's going to set up the, and it's going to be called back to later, I think. Yeah. I wrote down one quote that I particularly liked. Uh, It's not the sort of thing I'd expect you to understand because it doesn't have anything to do with money, Uh, which to me is just such a a perfect summation of, of, uh, of Marlowe's character. Yeah. Um, The face of another. That was. uh, Yes, 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 yes. Uh, And also. I'm probably talking about seconds too, right? I haven't seen seconds. I have not either, but I've I've wanted to for a while, and uh, I think it has been in some places references in noir. So hopefully, will will be an excuse for us to finally watch it. Yeah. Uh, All right. I mean, well, we could just keep talking about this movie for the rest I of the know, this, episode. This, this could have uh, this could have easily been half of an episode on its own. Um, yeah. However, we have two more films to get to, so let's move along to our next one: The Lady in the Lake. My name is Marlowe, Philip Marlowe. Occupation, private detective. You know, somebody says, follow that guy. So I follow him. Somebody says, find that female. So I find her. But some cases, like this one, kind of creep up on you on their hands and knees. And the first thing you know, you're in it up to your neck. Right now, you're reading in your newspapers and hearing over your radios about a murder. They call it the case of the lady in the lake. It's a good title. It fits. What you've read and what you've heard is one thing. The real thing is something else. There's only one guy who knows that. I know it. This lady in the lake business started just three days before Christmas. The only film out of the five not based on High Window or Farewell, My Lovely, Lady in the Lake adapts the Chandler novel of the same name as Marlowe is hired to track down a missing wife and instead discovers a body in a lake. Oh, and the movie is entirely shot in first person a first for feature-length stories and the last for quite a while i wonder why all right uh again just to give a little context uh so robert montgomery plays marlo here uh and he wanted to direct after assisting john ford on they were extent on, on they were expendable and so we pushed to make this production happen and he also pushed for the first person format because he thought it'd be the best way to capture the first person narration of a philip marlowe novel uh critics did not agree and audiences were indifferent uh and i have to side with them because it was rough 
It really was. Um, wow. Does um, I, so. All right. Hats off to to uh, to them for trying something new. I I I guess you don't know till you try it. But um, but it doesn't work on a number of levels. It's on a technical level, I think the noir, and especially at this time when it is still mostly driven by conversation, you just can't do this because there's no, it's all just static medium shots of a character talking directly into camera for like five to 10 minutes at a time. It is just monotonous. They did successfully. Um, predict the most boring parts of video games. Uh, I mean, it's, well a cut, it's a series of cutscenes. Yeah, and then they it's, skip over the like most of the action scenes and report on them after the fact and go, "Oh, well, I went up to the lake and I found they found a body." You're like, it's, that's that's the movie. Utter, Why are we? It's utterly bizarre. <laughs> you're talking um, to people. You yeah, t- you you're trapped for most of this movie in a series of rooms that you don't even get a sense of space within because you're you're just kind of locked between the few angles the camera will occasionally pivot to right so he Uh, sits he stands he sits back down (laughs) it's it's real rough and and that's not even the worst of it the worst is that uh you are deprived of of any real sense of of marlo of uh or this would be true of any protagonist by the way it's this marlo is almost beside the point to this it's almost a shame it had to happen to poor marlo yeah, I mean, it also doesn't help that, I mean, you're not getting his face, you're not getting his reactions, you're not really getting a performance. I really enjoy, I mean, we're making a podcast, I enjoy podcasts, I enjoy dramatic podcasts, but I think dramatic narrative podcasts suffer because so much of human communication is nonverbal. And so even the best actors often end up becoming a little stilted in their performance when it comes to dramatic audio. And that's what happens here because it's just Robert Montgomery giving line readings from off camera the entire, almost the entire time. Also, he just sounds like Alan Alda to me. And so that added this extra huh. disorienting uh, element uh, where it's just like, I can't take any, any of this seriously. No, it's possible with a, with, with someone that had more, uh, more voice acting ability mm-hmm. that, that it could have been, I don't think it could have been great, but it could have been marginally better. Uh, I don't think that that anything that is just uh, a series of ten minute conversations within a single room it, it is ever going to stand up in the noir genre at, at all. But but it, it's possible with someone giving more dynamic line readings and actually getting real response out of the people he's playing with uh, that maybe it could have been better. Yeah, and because this does star uh, what's her name as the femme fatale. Or she's not a femme fatale, I guess, in this case, but the uh, lead well, in this is because she, she's in. Oh my God, I'm pulling blank on this. Uh, anyway, I mean, we're just talking about the, we're not just talking about, but we're engaging with the technical elements because there's not a lot. The movie like adapts the. Uh, Audrey Totter. Audrey, yes, because she is in The Postman Always Ranks Twice. Yes. And the setup which are both great movies. So, you know, she can, but uh, she is like... She's she's tasked with too much, to be honest. It's not, she it's not to really fair to any... Like, she's functionally the main any, character. Yeah. Um, uh, and she she's a main character playing against uh, against nothing, against right. a, a, a I mean, person just, who's... Yeah. She's yeah, vamping it, against the camera. Like, she's just, like, 
arched eyebrows the entire time. I'm like, I know you could do better work than this. So I'm assuming this is just sort of the compromises of the format and not the... It just doesn't work. And yet, you know what? The proof is right there when we finally get to the car chase scene and it's such a breath of fresh air because they actually bothered to get out of out of buildings and yeah. and out into the streets and and we see for a moment we see some action it actually does light up a little bit right well because the camera's only actually has a dynamic reason to move i mean there's a reason i think that the actual first person movies that we've seen since then that have any kind of like hardcore henry are action movies because the main character is always moving so there's constantly a reason to adjust the frame and there's also constant visual stimulus happening because it doesn't work as a drama. I mean, it's the same reason I think that most dramas don't work as found footage movies because if, if you're just saying they're holding a camera and you're talking to somebody and you're not like running from something then I'm just going to stand here just like this movie. I'm just going to stand there with a medium shot of you from the chest up and you're going to talk to the camera or talk slightly askew of the camera and so, you know, and so again, the, the car chase, not only is it action, but it's also got this very unsettling hellish chorus to it. So it also kind of, to me, points to the version of this that does work in found footage horror movies, where it is that sort of you're trapped and the camera's sort of determining where you look because you're trapped in the character's point of view. And there's information outside of the camera's range that you're being denied that you really want but you, you you can't have. Yeah, uh, it's just uh, it, a baffling choice how how it all came together. We have a detective who's not actually doing detecting, who wants to be a ri- writer. Right, that was um, a weird. I don't know. That was such a weird like because it even intros. It, it, and from what I read, this this was a studio mandate because they chickened out on the first person thing, which totally understand. But the studio forced. Uh, Montgomery to put together these interstitials of Marlowe writing the book that is the movie we're watching and he's explaining giving like some uh, essentially some voiceover narration to bridge some of the scenes and provide some context they thought wasn't clear like there's a time jump after the car crash that he kind of explains away that you probably could have figured out if you just watched it but it feels like the studio going they're not going to understand that he fell asleep and then woke back up because you're in the same place and it's the first person. Um, so it's just weird. It's just weird. I'm sure the studio saw it and realized they had absolutely no idea how to salvage it. Um, sure. Uh, but, yeah. And like also said, the, the, the Christmas, the Christmas, oh, the Christmas is, thing, yeah. is so arbitrary. Um, it, I mean, may- I don't, I don't know that it go arbitrary. I don't know that it works, but uh, you know, to me it is the, it's what Shane Black does, right? Like Shane Black's whole thing is we're going to do some bleak shit that's going to happen against Christmas and there's going to be an ironic juxtaposition between those two elements. It just doesn't know how to play into that here, I think. Like it's just sort of there. It's just sort of like, oh, and we're at a Christmas party and then we're going to leave the Christmas party to go have this conversation. Yeah. It, um it like at first it announces itself to you right right at the opening credits um and and i and i i appreciate the well i appreciate the juxtaposition it doesn't really find a way to do anything with it um this might be the of these five i think this is the one that makes the most changes from the book even though it has still has a philip marlowe i mean the next one we'll watch cuts out a lot of the book but this is the one that feels like makes the most 
actual alterations to it. Maybe maybe the Falcon takes over. Uh, the Falcon takes over makes a lot of changes too. <laughs> we didn't even talk about the whole like Orientalist Asian mystic thing that's going oh, on. The yeah. Falcon takes over. That was very weird. You know, 1940 There's... movie. She didn't get a little racism. Yeah, it wouldn't wouldn't be without it, I guess. But uh, but that's just one of the many things that get in those uh, in in the span of an hour that we hurdle through as uh, right. as we're well, it's such a all the plot thing of the time, right? I mean, you know, spiritualism and Orientalism were both very in vogue at the time. But we're talking about a movie four movies ago. Yes. But again, because there's just so little to talk about with this one besides the bizarre first person camera. I mean, that's what it's that's what's remembered for, if it's remembered at all, is the the decision to just lock you in and never let you out. All right. Is there anything else that you want to talk about with regards to Lady no, the Lake? No, I think I think we've uh we've nicely covered uh everything we need to about Lady in the Lake. So actually no, I'm sorry, we did there's one thing we skipped. So the um you know, he's kind of going around. He's again. There's interlocking mysteries. We didn't talk about Lloyd Nolan. So Lloyd Nolan pops up as oh, yeah, of the course. cop who's investigating these series of murders that begin happening around Marlowe as he's. I mean, we didn't really talk about the plot at all, right? So like Marlowe writes a book, tries to get it published. The publisher is like, I don't want to publish this, but I want to hire you as a private detective. My boss, who I want to marry because he's got money, his wife has gone missing, or his wife went to get a divorce but she didn't really go to get a divorce. I want you to prove that she's dead so I can marry him. I think it was sort of like where we started with this. Um, but anyway, he has to go to like this ritzy, like Malibu-esque beachside re- resort city and trying to find the missing wife, talking to her lover. Uh, but then the lover turns up dead and he meets the lover's, uh, the landlord uh, right before he discovers the body the, the cops think that he's involved somehow. They think maybe the wife went up to the cabin that the the publisher owned, but then they find the body of the the caretaker's wife in the lake, and or no, the, the caretaker's wife is missing. I don't know. It's uh, part of the problem again is that like so much of it is the action happens off screen, and then characters tell you about it after the fact. Um, but all the payoff getting into spoilers for a terrible movie, but. A, pretty good move pretty good book from what i remember from when i read it is the landlord is not actually the landlord she was also lying because marlo pretends to be an insurance agent to get info about the the dead man the landlord was actually the missing wife who has also been lying and uh and this is important because i think that's one of the hallmarks of a chandler novel that we'll get into is the a female character who has been pretending living under another name and pretending to be somebody else during the narrative there's a lot of duplicitous women in Chandler's books uh you know he I think he like lived with his mother for a while if I'm remembering correctly like I think he's sort of a Lovecraft-esque uh figure in that regard um great (laughs) so there's some stuff done back there I might be making that up but I think that's I think that's correct okay let's we've talked about lady in the lake long enough we really have but that's all right we got brasher the brasher the balloon uh, i finished lady in the lake and i thought like this is this is pretty much as bad as it gets and then i watched brasher the balloon i was like oh boy this is the brasher doubloon an early american coin highly valued not only because it's rare but also because of its romantic and violent history the man who coined it was robbed and killed through the deceit of a woman and seven succeeding owners have likewise come to abrupt and unhappy ends. Now, for the eighth time, 
the brasher doubloon is again involved with love, treachery, avarice, and murder. This man is willing to kill to obtain it. This girl tries to buy it at the price of her soul. This man risks the electric chair to possess it. This man gambles his life to recover it. This man dies for using it for blackmail. This woman would commit murder to keep the Brasher doubloon. You'll have to get that coin from him, Merle. All right, our last entry for the evening. Brasher doubloon returns to Chandler's high window, this time adding back in a Marlowe, but taking out the whole daughter-in-law subplot, which is probably the more interesting part, at least, you know, from the Lloyd Norland version, uh, resulting in a simpler case that somehow also manages to be a half hour longer. <laughs> yes. Uh, but oh. yeah, this one's just about the fake doubloons and real murder, and they do keep the gaslighting element. Uh, and so this is our final feature Marlowe appearance for 22 years until uh, the 1969 Marlowe uh, self-titled. There are TV and radio adaptations in the meantime, but for the purposes like, of this podcast... It's like he for, was... And, and noir is not done by any means. No, noir, noir, noir is noir is not done, but Marlowe is done, and maybe, maybe, just maybe, Montgomery, the, uh, uh, one, Montgomery, two, uh, two people uh, named Montgomery. Uh, <laughs> no, it is Montgomery, right? Two, this was George Montgomery, right? Yes. Yeah, George Montgomery killed him. <laughs> two, two. I, I would, I think, let's give, let's give uh, Robert Montgomery a little bit of credit True. in that There's too. Um, some back-to-back body blows there. I don't even know what to talk about besides like uh, so the mystery is kind of the same I mean, the mystery is the same the uh, it is interesting in both and just in the source material that from the get-go you're like oh this son the the woman's son is bad news which is a clever misdirect because he is bad news but then when you get to the end you find out that the the matriarch killed her husband blamed the assistant and convinced her that she has murderous blackout rages. It's not technically a misdirect because it is true that the son is stole the doubloon, is covering things up and is actually guilty of some other murders, at least in the original, in the original book in the earlier adaptation. So it, it, so it keeps, it keeps those elements, but it gets rid of the daughter-in-law. It gets rid of, it's just like the coin's missing. The coin's back. The coin has been duplicated, but actually there was a murder 20 years ago or however long ago it was. And there was an Easter day parade and somebody happened to film it. It's a Zapruder film. Uh, I mean, it really, it really is like it, the man on the knoll, like the man on the grassy knoll filming this parade. It, Cause the first, the earlier one is, totally um, how it feels. is just photography, but this one is somebody making a home movie of the parade and then whipping the camera over and being like, there's a man falling out of that window. My God. And then blackmail, you know, so, uh, so because he realizes that the, the matriarch pushed him out so 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 to get the the good out of the way here for me um is and, and i think this is partly because we're a little bit further into the noir era so um the genre is firming up by this point but it does it does feel much more uh of a piece with the genre i liked how they yes. played up the wind um i i yeah, like santa and a winds thing was interesting I, I thought the using weather as a as an element in it and it was quite effective. It's not like there's a lot of rain in LA, but um, but I, I liked the use of the wind. A lot of the shots, I thought that um, I thought that Mrs. Murdoch's um, garden parlor play, mm-hmm. uh, was you know was pretty very big sleep. Uh, yeah, very big sleep. It's got um, it's it's lush but filled with shadows. It, um, it you know all, all, overall, I think that a lot of the the visual elements of noir 
fell into place nicely here and yeah and i liked, worked. Uh, totally agree with that i also like the supporting characters here you know i think uh florence bates is i mean isn't doesn't have a lot to do until the very last scene when it's revealed but once she does have something to do she has a lot of fun and so yes. that's that's a fun reveal at the end you know nancy guild as the uh the love interest i i liked i thought she had good presence and i, I liked her interpretation of the assistant more than the the first one who's who is much more backgrounded because they have the daughter-in-law to sort of handle a lot of the romantic interest and like those that that heavy lifting for the plot so a lot of that focus falls to to her character to nancy guild's version of the character and i thought she did a solid job with it and then the uh son uh actually reminded me of um the kid who's following Longstreet around in uh, Maltese Falcon, the gunman. Yeah. Um, and uh, Gunsel, his, um, you know, subtextual he just, he just, gay lover. Uh, he just died uh, two weeks ago. Oh, really? I think. Oh, uh, I did see that. Yes. Yeah. I don't know when this episode is coming out, so it'll have been a while in the past. It but will be. As he of died, recording, he, he died, died early in March. Um, yeah. Yes. As of uh, recording. So, no, I liked the supporting characters. Uh, so Agreed. Good stuff out of the way. Uh, uh, George Montgomery. Uh, predatory is the word I wrote down. <laughs> yes, yes, you did. He, he is. I was getting Errol Flynn vibes. That was my my read on the character. Not, sure, not okay. like a good Errol Flynn. Not, not that a was good. Sort no, of he's the, like um, he's he's definitely a womanizer. He's definitely he's like creepily eager. Uh, oh, the whole like you gotta get over not men not being able to touch you. Let me give you a lesson. First lesson, we kiss. Second lesson, over the shirt stuff. It's like, what's going on, dude? Uh, um, I don't like it when men touch me. Well, in that case, you'd better do something about your appearance. <laughs> Absolutely gross. Oh. So apparently George Montgomery was a boxer who transitioned out of that into acting. I can understand why. I mean, he's, he is a handsome guy and he can stand and, and deliver some lines. It's just the wrong read on the character. Like, there's a bunch of bunch of ingredients in the stew and they did not come together into a tasty stew. You know what I mean? No, you watch how, how effortless Bogart is with, mm-hmm. with flirtation. Um, mm-hmm. How, how he sell how he sells it par- partly because his, he, his interest. I mean, I think the eagerness ruins, ruins it right there. He's yeah. But Bogart plays it cool always. And, uh, and, 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 he also has chemistry with yeah. <laughs> with actresses, but in this case, Montgomery is uh, well. It doesn't help when you're positioning someone who uh, saying right off the bat, like I don't like being touched, and right. just be and, like, I, I deny yourself. I will not uh, respect agency. your boundaries. No, uh, yeah. I mean, he would have been good in like heel roles, right? Like the. I, the like the son right like if he was in these sort of like handsome cruel character roles i think that would work because it would kind of play into the sort of vapid attractiveness that he has because he is it's so clearly reads on screen to these like i'm a good looking man and i know that i'm a good looking man like that is that is his vibe uh you know he would have been a i don't know that he would have been great but he would have been typecast as uh 
uh, American Psycho as uh, as Christian Bale as, Pat, as Christian Bale's character, Bateman. Patrick Bateman. There we go. I was like yeah. Norman Bates, but not Norman Bates. This is a sign that we're getting old that we can no longer remember any of these things. <laughs> like we already decided to dedicate a huge chunk that, of our brains to remembering. I, I think it's that you movie when, trivia when you just, have to watch so many movies, eventually yeah. it just crowds. You, <laughs> there's only the so much too big, make. and you have to really really is. to find. For our younger listeners, a Rolodex is just another sign of how old we are. <laughs> oh boy, uh, this was—I don't know. We'll, we'll, we're going to wrap up with some rankings, so I don't want to spoil anything. But uh, whew, uh, boy, oh yeah, um, no, it's. I don't know um, anything it, to really talk about outside of all this. There, there really isn't. I, per, I, 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 I thought. At, I really thought that this had promise from the early goings. I thought, and and uh, I was I was waiting for Montgomery to. Um, to warm up to the role uh, yeah. that didn't happen, but I thought it's just so like, shallow. Like, really, it really didn't. And by the time, by the time he turned the creep on, it, it and it just didn't really let up. Um, yeah, you know what it is? It's um, he's like late era John McClane, where he's practically a superhero, and just like, shit happens to him, and he just it just rolls off his back like water off a duck. Whereas, you know, Dick Powell and Humphrey Bogart are die hard and die hard to McLean where it's like bad stuff happens and it hurts and I, I might not survive this you know what I mean like George Montgomery is just like <laughs> I got punched I'm surrounded by a bunch of dudes and I'm just gonna roll my way out of this and jump out a window and it's all good yeah yo oh you're totally right about that because Bogart Bogart especially and we talked about Bogart would never jump out a window after like getting into a fight with (laughs) but Bogart Bogart takes hits left and right he um he he can throw them too um he knows how to disarm people but um but man he he takes beatings uh Dick Powell (laughs) gets his gets uh blind i mean he gets really blinded yeah but it, it never feels like george montgomery doesn't have the upper hand or doesn't believe he has the upper hand in any given scene yeah agreed um it's it, it pushes it just a little bit a little bit too far and 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 you really um you lose sight of that uh that there's there's no that inner turmoil there's nothing no again just it's all surface level there. it's all yeah. like shark eyes you know uh, all, all right. right so we made it through all five of these so now that we've seen these plus the big sleep we've seen every film adaptation of a uh, raymond chandler philip marlowe novel that took that was released in the 1940s so what can we say about what unites a chandler story uh you know just to kick it off something for me is the interlocking mysteries that all these ended up having except for the last one because again they simplified it and even then you still have the missing doubloon leads you to the gaslighting and covered up murder. Right. Um, and that's like the simpler one. Um, and I think a big part of that just comes back to the fact that Chandler often was combining several short stories that he'd previously published and then lengthening them and making them all one character and then turning that into a novel, you know, like that was a lot of what he did. Um, so I think that kind of reads into how his mysteries are constructed where it's always, I started on this one mystery and then it led to a different mystery and then a third mystery kind of intersected it. And then all of a sudden there's a bunch of dead people. That really does help set the the pace for a lot of these, um, mm-hmm. these early noir films and, uh, That's, uh yeah, you know, totally. you've got, um, y- the idea that plot is kind of disposable and you, the most important thing is to move yourself from, 
um, from one encounter to the next. Mm-hmm. And, and that's going to hold viewers attention. A lesson which Lady in the Lake did not really <laughs> listen to. And again, I think it just comes down to like the limits of that, uh, even just on a technical level, the limits of how much they can move that camera, I'm sure was also forced a lot of compromises in the storytelling. And at a certain point, as the director, you got to say, the story is the thing. I can't sacrifice the story because I think it's a cool idea to do this other thing. Yeah, yeah it makes you wonder how many days they were supposed to shoot that thing on. Because um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm willing to bet they shot it in like 10. Oh, God, yeah, you probably, yeah, just knock it out. Um, like each day is, each, each, each scene is like one setup, one day, yeah. and you move on to the next thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, also, something I had not thought about before watching all these back to back, but was sort of an interesting element that that cropped up is the large number of people who are under different names, frequently the women, right? So like here you've got Veronica, the, from the different Farewell My Lovely adaptations, or who's, who was the gangster's mall, who's now assumed a new identity and a new life. Um, That's also the case with the, uh, the landlord in Lady in the Lake, who's actually the missing wife. Who's pretending to be this other person? I would kind of lump the like missing chauffeur, the missing uh, bagman from Big Sleep, and like his wife, like that whole people keep trying to be like he's alive and he's out there, but really he's been dead for months because the younger daughter killed him uh, from the Big Sleep. So, and I think part of that is just the the benefits of the time, right? Like you could not do that now because you'd be able to like the private detective would have a photo of the person that he's looking for and would just go, Oh, you're, you're this person. Also, you'd have a social security number and a long paper, you know, but at the time you you could just move someplace else and become someone else instantly. And no one, unless somebody else had already met you previously, you know, they'd be like a, a blonde woman, is who you're looking for. And it's like, oh, it could be anybody. I also think that as viewers where, um, and this is, this is due to the, the internet largely and, and film people uh, or not just film, any kind of narrative are able to connect with each other really readily, but people um, are more, uh, are more willing to pick things apart these days mm. in a way that, that means narrative. Yeah, Reddit um, investigators who are like, yeah, to solve Westworld. It's like, dude, it's a story. <laughs> Yeah, it's um, it's it, not a where, puzzle. I mean, it kind of is a puzzle, but that's a bad example. Westworld does set themselves up for that, but uh, which they um, embrace, right? To fair, fair play to them. Like season two, they were like, "All right, we're going to give you a thing that's going to let you can use to solve the story if that's what you really want to do instead of watching the show." <laughs> so they know, like they know. That's all separate from this, though. But um, but yeah, I think that like uh, to audiences in the the forties, you're you you don't have that same kind of scrutiny that mm-hmm. is applying to to a lot of these stories. So it's really more about um, it. It's more about making sure you hit those those interesting story beats. Audiences don't need to understand everything that happens in the big sleep. They don't right. need to necessarily follow it. They just need to enjoy the the journey. Right. Well, I think it's also uh, a function of the explosion of narrative content over the last hundred years, right? In, in publishing, in movies, the average viewer, reader, what have you, is just a lot more experienced and able to see what's going on and put the pieces together than, than they were back then, right? Not to say that they were stupid, it's just literally the amount of exposure, you know, now you've got a TV, you've got a 
a piece of glass in your phone that allows you to watch just constantly movies and TV shows. Whereas back then it was like, okay, you had to go to the theater and pay money that especially during this time, you maybe not, did not have a lot of to enjoy some movies. So it was a, it's just a different way of consuming stories. Very, very good point. Uh, and then I think the final thing to sort of take away from this is, is the Marlowe uh, uh, of, you know, the archetype, right? That I think the interesting thing here was uh, George Sanders Falcon being such an outlier. Every other Marlowe, even George Montgomery's terrible Marlowe, are still obsessed about money, right? They're all like, this is how much you're getting paid. You're paying me extra. Don't forget about the expenses. I mean, that's one of the things I liked about Lloyd Nolan's was that he was like, all right, she wants, because uh, the, the rich lady is like, and itemize it for me. He just starts like itemizing made up <laughs> shit. He's like, all right, yeah. fine. I'm going to take you for, because she's also like refuses to pay him his full amount. He's like, fine, I'll, I'll itemize it and make it up that way. But it, it's, it's such a clear through line through all these and in the big sleep that just makes it that much more jarring when you're watching George Montgomery going around and being like, well, I'm not even a detective, but uh, detectives carry guns. So I guess I'll carry a gun around and just see what happens. Yeah, I think you've got um, you, you've got the times changing. Or George Sanders, not George Montgomery. Uh, right. for the, um, you've got the the times changing playing into that too, where the the Depression era, um, where people are 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 loving the the idea of affluent uh, mm-hmm. protagonists that they can kind of project themselves onto, and as uh, oh, wouldn't it be nice if if that were me, um, where, whereas, whereas by the time you're getting into the forties, it's now wartime. Um, it, it's a different climate entirely. And, and, uh, and so naturally I think the, you get a change in what the, what the main character is going to look like. For sure. And actually it's really, I didn't put it on this list, but, um, so train of thought, uh, a few bits of the Falcon takes over reminded me of, my man Godfrey to the point where I was like, was this on the same set? Uh, huh. the, I don't know, they might not have been the same. I don't know. When was my man Godfrey? I been 43. I thought, um, I think my man Godfrey was, was like 30, 36 or seven, right? Oh, was it? That might be. I, it's it's been, a little earlier. It's been a little minute. So, um, but I think the reason that it reminds me is because the Falcon takes over is also the only one of these set in New York. All the rest of these are set in LA. And I think that is so integral yeah. to the detective story in general. And it also the Nick Charles movies were set in New York, or at least the first one. I think he goes back to California after that first one. But the first one set in New York and Private Detective 62 set in New York. But all the noir that we've talked about has been set in L.A. And I think there's just something about, you know, there's the corruption. There's the like, it's sunny, but it's the dark underbelly of, of the sunny paradise like that all is part of it but i think too there's something about just how sprawling and flat it is or not flat but you know sprawling it's the it's the sprawl it's the it's the the sprawl it's the sense of um of opportunity um i think that that brings that brings a bunch of people there that are all trying to get ahead right Um, also a lot of like new money and fast money yeah uh the ability for car chases to (laughs) exist within um, but yeah, no, I just, I just think it's something about like that, that landscape that invites the detective to get lost and to kind of be chasing his own tail. Like there's just something about the, the space that it affords the narrative to just kind of, we are only know. just getting going with LA. For, oh yeah. I mean, uh, wait till we get to next, next episode. All right. So now that we've watched another five, well, three, three other versions of Philip Marlowe, plus another two characters dropped in the Philip Marlowe spot. 
thinking back to Bogart, like what what does he bring to the table? Like what why is he the iconic one that has that has stood the test of time? What what is his you know what's the je ne sais quoi that he's got? Um, he has a a presence. Uh, he has an ease in front of the camera. He has an ease with his co stars. He has um, that pervasive sense of cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's a lot of elements all lining up together that that yeah, work I mean, in his favor. It's not just one. It's not just one quality for sure. Uh, uh, the cool thing re- resonates for me. I think it is that feeling that he never wants it. Right, like so many of these. Marlowe's or detectives are trying and Marlowe yeah. is like he tries but he never wants to look he never looks like he's trying no uh, no it, he makes it look effortless uh and um and he does take punches he takes hits right. he has yeah. he has um he has wants he wants money he wants um he wants women, women but 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 it's never um it, it's always so matter of fact um right and and even someone like dick powell who um who has star quality um who um who does bring a lot to the table he he's still i don't know he he is transitioning out of out of a genre that he has been very comfortable in whereas bogart seems like he was born for noir to happen yeah and powell even still the movie is still even kind of playing into the ingenue thing because it ends with a rom-com bit, right? Where he's it does. getting escorted out of the building and he's blind. He's still, still wrapped up in the gauze. He's talking to the cop. And he doesn't realize that the, um, the daughter is, is there. And he's like, the cop's like, what would you tell her if you saw her? And he's like, oh, I'd tell her that, I, you know, this, that, and the other thing, but it doesn't matter. She wouldn't believe me anyway. I mean, it's like classic rom-com stuff. Uh, and it ends on that very upbeat, like, and you found love. I mean, that's probably the one thing that kind of reads reads a little funny in in in. Uh, not for all my lovely, but it, um, uh, it, murder it, my sweet. Um, yeah, and and I think I'm assuming we can all chalk that up to uh, the studios wanting 100%. a nice uh, uh, a nice and, upbeat swing at the end. Pretty, you know, the, this is what Dick Powell like that. You know, I think it is also hedging your bet in terms of Dick Powell's star presence to be like, people are going to show up because they want to see Dick Powell fall in love. So let's give them what they want. But then it's also something else too, is that uh, Andre Bogart is the least pretty person in this group of detectives. And, you know, he's a handsome guy, but he is not a pretty guy. And pretty much everybody else here is like classic, pretty handsome movie stars or actors, at least, you know, that read well on screen. And I think that that lived in feeling just to his face, like brings something to the Marlowe role that makes it just feel so much more earned in terms of his jadedness and his, uh, his and, that, and that cool factor. Again, he's like, I've seen this, I've already done this thing five times before. So I'm going to get punched in the face and that's just what's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's, uh, there's uh, some, there's some quality detectives going on here, but uh, Marlowe and otherwise, but uh, no one, no one's on Bogart's level. And I think no. that only shows why we t- deservedly gave him a full episode. Right. I mean, nobody else, none of these other Marlowe's would be caught saying like, you know, when, when she comes out and she goes, you're shorter than I expected, you know, and he makes a joke about it. Like no, nobody would ever say that to any of these other Marlowe's, right? Like they all have too much presence or not presence, but you know, like they're, they're, they're just again more classically like 
the the cut of a leading man and marlo like bogart so wonderfully plays against that expectation so let's rank rank them what's the point of art if you can't uh assess it in in a numerical fashion and compare them in in, uh uh all right so we're gonna first we're gonna rank the chandler adaptation so we're gonna do all of them and then we're gonna rank the marlows and for that one we will skip uh sanders and nolan because they are not marlows so we are uh, including the big sleep with our ranking of yes uh, we are including big sleep for both of these and bogart um because it is a marlow uh he pulled a marlow uh all right so uh, i feel like let's start at the top we're going down because i think that's just i mean right because like yeah all right it's let's it's an it. easy it's an easy top two if you've been listening uh, yes i think it's a pretty easy top two and i'm guessing mine is flipped from what yours is fred no you th- really you you like murder my sweet more than i did i did like murder my sweet more Holy than shit. the big sleep i i really enjoyed murder my sweet okay. um so i i'm i'm so giving murder that my, my your number one murder my sweet is my number one and big sleep is my number two big sleep's my number one uh you know i think there is more interesting directing going on in murder my sweet and it is and it is it is a legitimately great movie, right? It's not just like great in comparison to these other four movies. It is Murder My Sweet is is great. I can't. I'll watch you just a little bit, but uh, I, I'm and I'm doing last it. Time, I, I'm dude. very much doing this based on on the uh, the direction and this sure. this feels um, this feels like um, every bit the noir that I wanted to see. Really loved it. Um, and stylistically, it's much more of a noir. Yeah. Dick Powell does the job. Um, yeah, I mean, like Dick he, Powell is like again. I just like a little bit more of a problem with him, but also like Big Sleep is just the er vibe of this kind of movie for me, where I'm just like, go for a warm bath. That's a, I think I said that last <laughs> episode too, but it, it still holds true. So, all right, flipped ones and twos. Uh, we've got four more to go. What's your number three? Um, my number three is um, is going to be um, is going to be Time to Kill. Me too. Solid, uh, solid solid noir comedy like not even a comedy like solid noir with just a sprinkling of screwball uh and that was pretty easily gonna be my number three <laughs> right i mean now we're just like oh boy uh all right so we've got lady in the we both have lady in the lake falcon takes over and um pressure to bloom left uh all right so my number four <laughs> is the falcon takes over uh it is not great and not even good but it's fine and it doesn't and it's not bad <laughs> that's where i'm at with my number four my number four is lady in the lake and mm. that is because um well it's it isn't good but it does try something different and i'm gonna give i don't uh, i it, it botches it but I don't think it knew how badly it was going to botch it till it was already done. Um, and I'm going to give him credit for trying. A little extra credit there. Yeah. Um, all right. So what's your number five? Uh, my number five is the Falcon takes over, um, which is, um, which, which is kind of Dullsville uh, for me. I will, and, uh, I'll remember uh, nothing about the Falcon uh, takes over within a month or two. It's a hodgepodge of genres, and I I think that George Sanders is either being weird or sleepwalking through that performance. <sighs> Man, my number five. I don't know. This is this is tough. I I think my number five is the Brasher to Bloom. 
uh, just because like, again, on a technical level is so much more competent and it is, it is, um, it is also Dulesville and it is another one where like, I mean, I, it's already fading from my memory in, in most, most parts, but it is like competent. It, it wasn't making me angry as I was watching so, so here's my my um, central contradiction is that I, I gave my top spot to Murder My Sweet because the direction was was so good. Um, even though I I can obviously recognize that that Bogart um, is the the superior Marlowe sure. to to Dick Powell, but at the at the same hand I I'm giving um, even though even though I think that. Um, the Brasher doubloon is better directed and has more noir elements to it. I dislike, I dislike George Montgomery's um, Marlowe so much that he is <laughs> at the bottom. That's totally fair. Uh, I can fault you for that. I will put Lady in the Lake at the bottom because I was angry watching that movie that it was making me go through this. I, I mean, I appreciate a, like a big swing and a miss. I'm not going to like, fault anybody for it but just on a personal level if you had to if you asked me like which movie would i soonest or uh or least soonest want to watch again like lay the light i would refuse to watch again it, it, it was balloon, i'd be like whatever like it's not gonna be good but whatever Lady the leg i'd be like this is oh it just made me no, mad you're, you're 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 talking me almost the other direction because i do think when i think back on having to rewatch it i don't think there's a single thing i could further get out of that movie um oh. there uh there there really isn't whereas there were some nice elements to the brasher doubloon i just right. I, I i just disliked george montgomery's performance so much yeah um I, so I, I mean i this is one i like i said i hold murder my suit against you a little bit but i cannot blame you for for putting brasher doubloon at your bottom i mean this is like really the bottom two or three here are um, slim beings. We have we have three three misfires. Although maybe it's unfair to say the Falcon takes over is a, a misfire because it's not it's not really firing in the same range as the right. others. It's not, it's not really trying to be a noir. It's like no. I think it's doing what it's doing in a, in a sort of like functional way, right? Like it's yeah. you know a, a knockoff Nick Charles. Yeah, that's what you get. That's <laughs> true. Uh, all right. Um, so next we're going to rank right. the Marlowe's. I think this one we will be in agreement on. Um, and so for this one, we are going to skip George Sanders and Lloyd Nolan, and we're just going to stick with the actual Philip Marlowe's. Uh, so let's start at our bottom. Well, let's start at the top because I think this is going to be pretty yeah. straightforward. And I feel like <laughs> we're both going to have some invective that we want to get out at the bottom. Yep. Uh, so number Bogart. one, Bogart. So good. So good. I mean, no, no I just, like you said, the reason we had a whole episode about him. Number two, Dick Powell. Dick Pretty Powell, good. yeah, does does the job. Does the job. I'm I, he's he pops up. He's gonna pop up again in some other noirs, and I am actually now kind of looking forward to it. So, yeah. um, Robert Montgomery, non presence, non non presence somehow literally. beats out literally having having virtually no. Oh, George Montgomery. I mean, just like a charisma black hole on screen. Yeah, it's, oh. I mean, it's just like that feeling where you're like. You meet somebody, and you're like, "Oh, you think you're the hottest shit around, and you're not." Tristan, so Tristan and I first met at a job together. I'm not going to give more details, but Tristan, there's somebody at that job that I did not like, and I think you remember who I'm talking about. And uh, from from our time working together, 
it was the one person we worked with that I did not like, and he reminds me of George Montgomery in the same way of being like, I am hot shit. And you're just like, <laughs> oh, no, you're not. Do you know who I'm talking oh, about? Yes, I do. Yeah. Sure so, do. <laughs> <laughs> I just like, <laughs> it's the same thing. It's just like, I just dislike you from moment uh, one, and that's never going to change. Yeah. Oh, that's actually a good, that's a good comparison. That's a good comparison. Wow. Um, I, cause I was trying to think if there's any like c- current actors that I, mm. that, that I feel that about, um, well, actually <laughs> Jared Leto. Uh, <laughs> I think that's not like Jared Leto, I think is like the, the I, I'm presuming that your dislike for him comes from the meta extra textual shenanigans that he gets up to like the performers themselves necessarily like sometimes i like him sometimes i don't like many actors but i think that's compounded by the meta you know the extra textual of like and then he mailed a bunch of dildos to his castmates isn't he hard yeah none of, you're like none what? of that helps no that's, that's what very, what are we doing uh, here everybody oh boy but it is hard to think of i mean i guess people like george montgomery don't necessarily um go on to you know become hollywood legends so there's i mean there's a reason that he like you know because he doesn't have yeah he doesn't have that thing um doesn't have it all right so (laughs) all right that was it for the marlows for 22 years we're gonna skip the tv shows maybe we'll be back with marlo but we'll be back with marlo but it'll be a little while you know maybe down the line if we do um our long threatened Patreon series. If we start doing a Patreon and, and start doing TV shows on there, I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on the Philip Marlowe. Uh, also there's um, a few TV movies that we will not touch on that. Um, there's one that's starring uh, James Caan as a very old Philip Marlowe uh, called Pool Springs. And then there is an episode of a very hard to find Showtime series called Fallen Angels that has, um, oh my God, I'm blanking on this actor's name, but it is an interesting installment. Let me look it up here real fast. And I, I'm, I, this is one that I like, we'll have to figure out a way to watch it because it is not, it, it, as far as I can tell, it's kind of disappeared. But it was the Fallen Angels was a series of adaptations of classic short stories and novels by like Chandler, Hammett, um, all the all the classic noir writers. They got like great, I mean like, um, oh, I'm I'm finding this here. That's got a killer cast. Steven to it, Soderbergh but... directed, uh, and one of them. I mean, they're all standalones. They're all like each one's a standalone adaptation of a of a story. Who's the, who's the Marlowe though? I can't. Um, it is what the hell is his name? Uh, Danny Glover. Oh, ah, Danny Glover. Um, yes, yeah, so it's an adaptation of a of a Marlowe short story. But Fallen Angels is something that I am really hoping that we get to get to watch. It was a, yeah, executive produced by uh, Sidney Pollack, Peter Bogdanovich, Tom Cruise's only directing uh, installment was a Fallen Angels episode. Alfonso Cuarón directed an episode. Tom Hanks directed. Michael Lerman, Jim McBride, Steven Soderbergh, Kiefer Sutherland directed an episode. Okay. Um, and yeah. they're like I said, they're all based off of classic '30s and '40s hard-boiled fiction. So it is. If we can find a way to watch it, we're going to watch it or we're going to talk about it because it's I, I'm dying to watch this. Yeah, that sounds fast. That was not on my radar at all. Cool. Uh, wow. We came up researching researching all this. So, all right, but that's enough Marlowe for now. We're going to take a break from the Marlowe um, right now. What's in the box? 
in honor of Kiss Me Deadly, which we'll be talking about soon, what's something so good that you watched recently that deserves to be glowing in a suitcase? Oh, well, um, I've had a pretty good week of, uh, of viewings, personally. Caught a Bollywood film that I really enjoyed that I just happened to put on. Call, it's from 2010. It's called uh, Band Baja Baharat. And I, uh, I loved it. It delivered uh, everything I wanted to. The leads have terrific chemistry. It's about two wedding planners who are working together and inevitably fall in love with complications as these things go. Love uh, music is good. Uh, both both performers uh, really nailed it, loved it. It was uh, exactly what I wanted when I put it on. Yeah, we haven't talked about this, but I'm going to put links to these movies in our show notes uh, and retroactively. We're, we're, we are trying to record pretty far in advance, so... If I've done my homework right, this will be included from our very first episode. But this is the first time we're acknowledging it. Uh, so we'll have that link in the in the show notes so that you can know what to look for. Because I don't know how to spell that title you just said, but I'm very <laughs> intrigued. Because I also love a good rom-com. Yeah. I mean, uh, wedding planners, a a, speaking my language. Um, no, and it, it definitely delivers. Um, I also, um, I also caught up with, um, uh, with personal shopper, which I had missed. I, oh. I had somehow not seen that despite the fact that I absolutely you love, love Clouds, Clouds of Sils Maria. Yeah. Clouds of Sils Maria is one of my favorite movies of the last 10 years. Well, conversely, um, and, I love personal shopper. Still not watch Clouds of Sils Maria. I'm hoping to watch it like this month. So, um, it's well, well, I, I love them both. Um, and, uh, and, and Kristen Stewart is fucking great in, she is indeed. In, in personal shopper i i loved um i think those two are i'm right along with irma vep are my my top tier assayas uh, see irma vep i've been waiting to watch because i want to watch the um vampires original series oh, yeah. yeah which we'll um, probably watch for this podcast at some point so now i'm in my classic trap of like i love the genre but now i have to pace myself on watching it because we're going to watch it for the, the so i don't know i'll Eventually, I'll watch Vampires, and then I will watch Irma Vep. Hopefully, before the Irma Vep TV show that uh, yes. is producing comes out, because those, you know, then I'm going to really be behind. Yeah. Uh, so, so I already seen both of those, and then I yesterday I, um, I, I, I decided to revisit, and I don't do a lot of rewatching. Uh, I usually yeah. there's just so much to see so that I rarely. I've watched rarely this rewatch. Like 2000 movies long. I don't have time to watch and, them again. And I felt compelled. Um, maybe it was because of the Falcon takes over. Um, but I felt compelled to put on uh, on um, Journey to Italy uh, by Rossellini. I did see that you and, watched that. Yeah. And um, and it's it's George Sanders and Ingrid Bergman, and it is God. It, it hit me in such a, a a real way. This is a this is a movie about. A, a couple who um, goes to Italy to um, to sell off a property and amidst all of this their marriage is kind of showing its fractures and and begins to break down and this is from 1954 it is it's something that when I watched it for the first time which was at least 10 years ago if not longer I don't think I had had the proper cinematic knowledge or uh frame of reference or maybe just the life experience to really sure. have it have it hit me like it did but but there this is shot on location they are there at vesuvius and pompeii 
they're um they the landscape of Italy behind them they the the ruins it is it's such a real and visceral movie and it's such an internal movie it's mm-hmm. uh there's a lot left under the surface and Ingrid Bergman is so good at that um and 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 it just feels like such a massive departure on one hand it's on one hand it's kind of merging the Italian neorealist sensibility with with Hollywood but it's in doing so it's pushing what Hollywood films can be mm-hmm. further and it feels really modern um for a black and white film from 1954 it um it it feels like a world away from the melodramas of the the 1940s where it just trusts you to understand that there's a lot going on with these characters beneath what they're saying um, and and it's doing so by not having them on sound stages, but by putting them legitimately against the the crumbling post-war ruins, um, or in the case of Pompeii, of ancient ruins of of Italy. Uh, and uh, and I absolutely loved it. Uh, uh, it's it, it's so glad I revisited. So I've just started dipping my toe into that whole era of Italian cinema and I've uh, been enjoying it. So I'm sure I'll be watching it soon. Uh, and I totally get the, you know, you know, you, and I'm you a change bit cold. and then that changes your reaction to art. Like that's just life, right? Yeah. I'm a bit cold on Rossellini in general. Um, and maybe it's a sign I need to revisit his other, other films, but, um, but this, this went well. And I certainly have had movies that I've changed my mind on before. So it can happen again. Yeah. What uh, about you? For me, I spent a lot of time watching these very mediocre noir movies. Uh, for you, the few listeners, all dozen of you, if even that. But uh, what I did finally watch as a treat for myself uh, that I've been saving is uh, Mishima, the Paul Schrader's Life and Four ah, Acts. Yeah, four good chapters. stuff. Good so stuff. good. I mean, I am a I'm a I'm a Schrader guy. Um, did we see? first reformed together i think we did um i don't know if, if we I did but i've, I've that I, with brandon Shockley. i i have seen first reform but i don't think i saw it in theaters so oh, okay that wasn't yeah i saw it at um the landmark on mm. uh, clark um but anyway yeah i just uh you know his whole like uh i mean we talked about trader with Blue Collar, uh, which I thought was great. Uh, but I like Blue Collar so much in part because it's so different from his usual stuff. And uh, I think Mitch is like a fun breaking out of a lot of what he normally does, but it is still that like lonely man of God thing, except now it's about a fascist <laughs> instead of about a, uh, you know, tortured Vietnam vet or whatever. Um, no, I thought it was just like a fascinating character and I just loved what Trader was doing. And then also that soundtrack. I mean, I'm not a soundtrack guy personally. Like I usually, you know, I enjoy them, but I don't often listen to them outside of, I actually listened to this soundtrack for like 10 years now before having seen the movie in part because I just enjoy Philip Glass. And so I, I, I already loved it. And just pairing that with some of the incredible like imagery and uh, surrealism and stage work that's happening that that movie is is phenomenal and it, it is a pretty great movie that's my favorite schrader i've seen that's fair um it's definitely up there i don't know 
that I'd have to think about it. Like I said, he's his stuff is just so like on my wavelength that even the ones that I don't love, I still really like a lot. So it's it's tough for me to mm-hmm. to rank him. Yeah, that's that was very good. So, um, cool. I'm glad you saw that. Um, it's a yeah. Keep the keep the Schrader love going um, for those who have been listening <laughs> we'll to watch, us from the beginning. Uh, he'll come up again. Like American Gigolo will come up at some point. I'm sure um, Light Sleeper will come up at some point. You know, I mean, also his his writing work. You know, Taxi Driver is going to come up at some point. So yeah. All right. Well, thanks as always for joining us on this excavation of the darkest, greatest of genres, especially in this uh, jam-packed episode, five movies. I think it's going to wind up being like an hour and a half probably. So thanks for sitting through it. Uh, You can find us online at celluloiddirt.com and on Letterboxd under the handle Celluloid Dirt. We'll see you next time when the detective goes full pulp with the arrival of Mickey Spillane's Mike Hammer. Three cinematic adaptations, I, the jury, Kiss Me Deadly, and my gun is quick. We'll take us through the 50s as noir grows more and more hard-boiled until it verges on camp. Until then, may viewings be riddled with scandal and desperation. Good night. Celluloid Dirt is a strange phantom production. Written and produced by Tristan Johnson and Fred Pelzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. His work can be found at incompetech.com. If you like the podcast, tell a friend.